to Brenda. Uh, do please have the Bible open as always and uh, an outline in the bulletin. Will you just join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Please help us to listen. Help us to understand, not just in our heads, but deeply in our hearts, everything you want to say to us this morning. And help us to live accordingly. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as Alex mentioned, for a number of weeks now we've been thinking about the majesty of God from a number of different passages in the Old Testament. And uh, each passage has introduced us to a different attribute of God. And this morning our theme is grace. Um, Of all the themes that we've covered so far, I think this is the one that we associate most closely with the Christian Gospel. Uh, We believe the gospel of grace, we preach the gospel of grace. But uh, you might be rather surprised to find us going to the Old Testament in order to learn something about it. Because the popular misconception that many people have about the Bible today is that the Old Testament is mainly about law and judgment and the New Testament is mainly about grace. And I think many of us, when we were first converted, uh, were taught that the five letters of the word grace stand for God's riches at Christ's expense. And I guess for that reason, uh, we assume that if we're going to learn something about grace, the place to go to must be the New Testament. Who would have thought that we would find something useful to say about grace from 1 Chronicles. Well, if that is you, um, just suspend your judgment for a moment and let's consider the passage together on its own terms. Firstly, uh, a quick word of context. 1 Chronicles was written in about 538 BC. The Jews are beginning to return to the Promised Land after 70 long years of exile in Babylon. And uh, as they come back to an uncertain future, uh, to a country that's actually very different from the one that their parents left so many years before, the author of 1 Chronicles wants to give them a message of reassurance and hope. He wants to remind them of God's unchanging kindness and goodness to his people. And the way that he does it is by looking back to the glory days of King David, who had reigned in Israel about 500 years before this. As you know, David's reign was a time of tremendous spiritual vitality in the nation. Uh, For a start, it gave us Israel's hymn book, the book of Psalms. And uh, our passage today is a tremendous illustration, a tremendous example of that spiritual vitality. 
So have you got the picture clear in your mind that for the first readers of 1 Chronicles, this passage is actually a flashback designed to remind them of God's amazing grace. Now, the main message of this particular text is perhaps rather unexpected because it says that one of the tests of spiritual vitality, one of the tests of whether we've truly experienced the grace of God in our lives is our financial giving. I wonder if you knew that. And the author gets his point across by focusing on three aspects of God's grace. And the first I call the miracle of grace in verses 6 to 9. Now I think it's true to say that there is a great deal of confusion today about miracles. Uh, What many, many people today describe as miracles are often nothing of the kind. By contrast, the miracle of grace which God works in the heart of the person who turns to Christ, that miracle is the greatest miracle of all. And yet when it happens, comparatively few people notice, and even fewer would describe it as a miracle. Now, in our passage today, we have one of the most remarkable miracles in the whole of the Old Testament. The situation here is that God has been overwhelmingly generous to his people. Just think about the big picture with me. Um, He's given them a king who has delivered them from all their enemies. He's made the kingdom secure. He's given them wonderful promises for the future. And now that king, King David, is right at the end of his life. But before he dies, he wants to make sure that everything is in place so that the temple of God can be built. So what does he do? Well, he gets the whole assembly of Israel together and tries to rally them behind the project. So come with me to chapter 29, verse 1, beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, and so on. So can you see what David is doing there? He's getting their attention by telling them that he's set aside the bulk of his own personal resources for the building work. And then look at what he says in verse 5b. In verse 5b he throws down a challenge. He says, Now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? In other words, who's willing to follow my example? And the response of the leaders in verses 6 to 9 is astonishing for two reasons. 
Firstly, it is remarkable for the size of their gift. In verse 7, we're told that they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics of gold, and then a whole load of other things after that. Now, the NIV footnote in our Bibles is very helpful here because it tells us that 5,000 talents amounted to 170 tons. Now, by any standards, that is a vast amount of gold. Uh, We must be careful not to press comparisons with present-day values too closely. But um, at today's gold price, which is uh, $1,520 an ounce, that gift is the equivalent of $9.3 billion or 140 billion rand. And that's before we even start to think about the value of the silver, the bronze, the iron and the precious stones. So think about what this might look like in our context today. Uh, At the end of this service, these stewards will take up the collection and uh, they will retire into a quiet corner to count it up. But uh, suppose this morning that instead of reappearing after two and a half minutes, they're actually huddled together for three and a half hours. And when they finally emerge, they're white-faced and they ask for a quiet word with the elders. And they say to the elders, you know, we can't quite believe it. But this morning, instead of the usual 450 rand, the collection amounts to 140 billion. And it's not just a cheque from one man. No, the giving is evenly spread across the entire congregation. It is a miracle. And of course, they would be quite right. I think one of the points we need to take away from this is that there is a way of giving out of our abundance that doesn't really affect the way that we live. And I guess many Christians give like that. And it's not a wrong thing. Uh, I'm perfectly well aware that many people in Africa barely have enough money to feed themselves and their families. And uh, if they're Christians... They give to gospel work when they can, and sometimes they can't. And there's nothing wrong with that. But having said that, there are many, many, many Christians in Africa who are not in such difficult circumstances. They can afford to give regularly to gospel work, but they don't. And I think one of the lessons from our passage this morning is that it takes a true miracle of grace in the heart before a person will give in a way that is sacrificial. In a way that is actually lifestyle lowering. In a way that means we can't do everything we used to do before. Now something rather like that has happened in 1 Chronicles. But if the leader's gift was remarkable for its size, it was also remarkable for the manner in which it was given. Because we're told in verse 9 that they gave 
freely and wholeheartedly. In other words, King David hadn't had to send his bodyguards round to stand over them while they signed the pledge form. No, they gave freely. Literally, they had been liberated to give. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Lord Jesus, of course, had more to say about money than just about anything else. And the reason for that is that money has the potential to exercise power over our hearts. How is that? Well, more than any other generation in history, our generation has bought into the illusion that money gives our lives meaning. In the minds of many, many people today, money is the the, the currency of significance and security. And I hope you know that's nonsense. Because, you see, money cannot stop your spouse from cheating on you. Money cannot prevent you or any member of your family from dying prematurely. Money can never give you peace of mind because the more you've got, the more you worry about it. You know, you ask anybody who's ever invested their money in the stock market... And they'll tell you that when the stock market falls by 40%, they can't actually think about anything else. That is the kind of power that money exercises over us. Now, of course, being rich isn't wrong. The Bible never, never says that. But the truth is that if we give our lives to the pursuit of money, in the end, it will take control of us and it will squeeze all of the joy out of our Christian living. Listen to the testimony of three experts who ought to know. J.D. Rockefeller founded the Standard Oil Company, and in the first half of the 20th century, he was the world's richest man. Towards the end of his life, he said, I have made many millions but they have brought me no happiness. Remarkable statement. What about William Vanderbilt? Probably never heard of him. But uh, he made a vast fortune in property and constructing the American Railroad Network. And when he was at the very pinnacle of his wealth, he said, the care of a fortune is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Henry Ford was the founder, of course, of the Ford Motor Company, which has become a household name throughout the world. In spite of his phenomenal wealth, he said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Isn't that interesting? You see, although these men were enormously wealthy, there was a sense in which their money owned them. And they only came to realise it when it was far too late. So when in our passage we're reading that the leaders in Israel gave freely, it means that by his grace, 
God had set them free from the illusion that there was any other source of lasting joy apart from himself. And they wanted to make sure that future generations might experience that same freedom for themselves. And so a very, very real test of whether we've truly experienced the miracle of God's grace in our lives is to look at our own giving to God's work. Now some of us might not be able to give and that is okay because the grace that you have received from God as a Christian can overflow into gospel work in other ways. But if God has blessed us with finances, be they big or small, do we give freely? Do we give wholeheartedly? Does it really matter to us that other people have the chance to hear the gospel and to find freedom? And are we willing to give in a sacrificial, lifestyle lowering way? Now, of course, I know perfectly well that the world listens to a message like that and says, you've got to be bonkers. But you see, the truth is that it's actually a sign that God is at work and that God is doing what he delights to do. What's that? Well, God delights to set the captives free from an alien power. That's the miracle of grace. Then secondly, uh, in our passage, we find the goal of grace in verses 10 to 13 and David's famous prayer. You see, we might expect that uh, David's first response after this amazing collection would be to stand up in the presence of the whole assembly and uh, read out the names of the people who've given the biggest checks. Or perhaps to commission a special honours board to go on the back wall of the church to uh, list the names of all the major donors. But David doesn't do that. Instead, in verse 10, he he bursts out in, in praise, exuberant praise to the Lord in one of the most famous prayers in the whole of the Old Testament. Have a look at it. Praise be to you, O Lord. God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendour. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Now why does David respond like that? The answer, I think, is because the goal of grace is that we might see God for who he really is. That we might be so captivated by his goodness and his generosity and his greatness that we simply have to praise him. In fact, if we really have experienced the miracle of grace, of of being set free 
from all of the other false gods that surround us every day, no other response is actually possible. And why is that? Well, in, in any relationship, joy is incomplete without praise. So, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not for no reason that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. That's rather lovely, isn't it? So, in the same way you see, our joy as Christians is incomplete until we praise the Lord. Of course, the the manner of our praise will be different for different people in different cultures. So, uh, it's sometimes said that English people are only capable of showing affection to dogs and horses. And uh, so maybe the praise of some of my fellow countrymen will be a bit more restrained, uh, rather less exuberant than our dear brother Gibson and Toyoshime this morning. And isn't it delightful to watch them doing it? But you see, the serious point stands that the goal of grace is heartfelt praise to God. And if that is not your experience today, and if it never has been, and I humbly suggest that might be because you haven't yet experienced God's grace in your heart. This is such an important truth that uh, I want to ask you please to turn to the back of your pink question sheet and to a very searching quotation from a book by John Piper called God is the Gospel. I don't know whether you agree with me, but I do think John Piper's books are one of God's great gifts to the church in our generation. And if God God is the gospel is not on your bookshelf, uh, can I encourage you to put it on your Christmas list? This is what John Piper has to say. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There is no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the removal of God's wrath or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without any spiritual change. The gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy namely himself. Are you enthralled with God? Do you love him? 
Does God have first place in your heart ahead of everything else? Or are you actually only interested in his gifts? Before we move on, um, I want to show you there's something else rather nice here in David's prayer. And um, it means when you see it, that we can make David's prayer in verses 10 to 13 our own. Now, as I've already said, it's impossible, isn't it, to miss the note of exuberance in David's praying. Why is he so excited? Well, the answer is that in the miraculous generosity of the people's giving, David sees God at work beginning to fulfil one of the most important promises in the whole of the Bible. And it was a promise that God had made to David personally. The promise is actually set out for us in two places in the Old Testament. You can jot them down and look them up later. The first is in 2 Samuel 7. And the second is 1 Chronicles 28, the chapter before the one we're looking at today. And the gist of it is that God promised David two things. Firstly, God promised David that he would establish an eternal kingdom from David's line. And secondly, God promised that David's son, Solomon, would build the temple. Now, in both places, the the eternal kingdom and the building of the temple cannot be separated. They are connected. They are different sides of the same coin. And so you see, in our passage, the miraculous giving by the people for the temple project was a sign to David that God was at work in the midst of his people not just for the temple building project, but for building an everlasting kingdom. Now, someone will say, hang on a moment, Simon. Um, Solomon's dynasty died out. The temple no longer exists. What you're talking about here is purely historical. But that's not true. Keep a finger in 1 Chronicles, turn quickly to page 750. Page 750, John chapter 2. Passage that we looked at together earlier this year. We're going to pick it up at verse 18, page 750, John 2, verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of Jesus... What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the true temple. I'm everything the Old Testament temple was pointing to. That means 
I am God, present with his people, establishing an everlasting kingdom. And can I tell you that I'm willing to give up not just my lifestyle, but my life, so that you can be part of it. And so you see, this side of the cross, as we meditate on everything that God has done for us through the Lord Jesus, we can take the prayer of David in verses 10 to 13 of 1 Chronicles 29, come back there now, and we can make it our own. And in a few minutes we're going to do just that. But um, where are we so far? We've seen the miracle of grace in 1 Chronicles 29. We've seen the goal of grace. But there is a third and very important truth we must grasp here, which is the necessity of grace in verses 14 to 19. One of the most common misunderstandings that people have today about being a Christian is the idea that we come into the Christian life by grace, but we continue by works. How many Christians do you know who started out full of joy when they first came to Christ? They wanted to get involved in gospel work wherever they could. And now, just a few short years later, although they're still working hard, coming to church every Sunday, the joy has gone. Somewhere along the way, they've left behind the grace of God that captured their hearts when they were first converted. And now, they're desperately trying to pay God back or to earn favour with him. And, as a friend of mine so marvellously puts it, the result is they've become hunchback Christians. Great phrase, that, isn't it? And that's because they, they haven't really understood the Gospel properly. Because the Gospel teaches us that we start by grace and we continue by grace. Now, that comes out very clearly in the closing verses of 1 Chronicles 29. David prays in verse 16, have a look at it. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, now look at what he says. It comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. See, David knows that the people would have nothing to give if God hadn't provided for them in the first place. But you see, the problem is, the Bible says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And uh, you see, if you and I can find ways to serve the Lord and make ourselves look good at the same time, we'll do it. But you see, David knows that in anything that we do for the kingdom... God is most concerned about the attitude of our hearts. And that's why he continues as he does in verse 17. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. 
All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Now as I read that, I think the great question that comes into my mind is what on earth needs to happen in order for this happy state of affairs to continue? For people to go on giving willingly and living the Christian life by grace? How can we be sure that we won't slide back into a religion of works and in the process lose not only our joy but potentially a great deal more as well? Well, the answer is we can't do anything. See, by nature, we will always find ways to make our Christian service self-glorifying. And as we do that, we will be robbing ourselves of the greatest joy that any human being can ever have, which is the enjoyment of God himself. And that is why, you see, David prays in verse 18, O Lord, God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Because, you see, unless God intervenes, our hearts will very quickly become compromised. We start by grace, we continue by grace, we finish by grace. And if that's going to happen, we need to pray every single day that God will guard our hearts and keep them loyal to him so that we never, never stop praising God for his amazing grace. So let's do that together now. Won't you please stand and let's pray verses 10 to 13 of David's prayer together. Let's stand. Together. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Amen.